This is Edwin Crozier from the Franklin Church of Christ in Franklin, Tennessee again. Thank you for joining with us as we open God's Word, as we study a lesson from it so that we can glorify and honor Him. On the second Sunday night of every month, we devote ourselves to questions that have been submitted by members and guests of the Franklin Church. This is the lesson that was preached on the second Sunday night in January of 2006. The question is, why do the Gospels contradict each other, and how do we deal with it? Open your Bibles and let's learn some lessons about harmonizing the gospel accounts of Jesus Christ. It's the second Sunday night of the month, and as is our usual custom, we set this Sunday night aside to answer questions that have been submitted by guests and members of the congregation, and that's what we're going to be doing tonight. Although tonight we're going to be dealing mainly with one question, I've been conducting an email discussion with a friend of one of the members here, and we've been dealing with issues about the reliability of the Bible and uh, whether or not the Bible contradicts itself. And some of the questions came up, it's just really been an enlightening study for me. And I just thought as we came to our second Sunday night of the month that one of the questions that might be good for us to deal with as a congregation, just to take an honest look and, and understand it at, uh, at this question. And the question uh, is essentially, why do the Gospels contradict each other and how do we deal with it? Why do the Gospels contradict each other and how do we deal with it? I want to take a look at four overarching principles that help us understand what's going on in the Gospels. Because certainly, as we look at the Gospels, we can tell that there are differences in the way they tell the story. And there are some today who will take a look at those differences and say, see, Excuse me, see, there are contradictions. For instance, if you take a look at Matthew chapter 28, Matthew chapter 28 and verse 1. Now, after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. But now take a look at Mark 16. Mark chapter 16 and verse 1. Mark chapter 16 and verse 1 says, When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so that they might come and anoint him. We look at Luke chapter 24, this time verse 10. Luke chapter 24 and verse 10. Now they were Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, also other women with them were telling these things to the apostles. And then finally look in John chapter 19. Excuse me, John chapter 20 and verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, this is John 20 and verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came already to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. And so we've got Matthew chapter 28 and verse 1 has Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. Mark chapter 16 and verse 1 has Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome. Then we've got Luke chapter 24 and verse 10 has Mary Magdalene, Mary mother of the James, Joanna, and other women. And finally, John has just Mary Magdalene. Well, which one's true? Why do these accounts contradict? Why are there differences? And the, the critics will look at this and say, oh, these are contradictions. They're lies. Must be false. Is that true? If not, how do we deal with these differences? That's what we want to take a look at tonight. How do we deal with it? We've got four principles that I like to share with you on harmonizing the Gospels. The very first principle that we have to recognize is that we've got to understand what the Gospels are. Typically, if you were to ask somebody what the Gospels are, what do you think they would respond? Why, the Gospels are the biography of Jesus. Have you ever heard somebody view it that way? Or say it, well, the Gospels are the life of Christ. 
That is typically what we believe the Gospels are, but that is not what the Gospels are. The Gospels are not biographies of Jesus. They are not the life of Christ in that sense. I think perhaps John chapter 20 and verse 31 most succinctly defines what the purpose of the Gospels are, uh, what the purpose of the Gospels is. Many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of His disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. Why were the Gospels written? The Gospels were written so that by the time we got done reading a Gospel, we could believe that Jesus is the Christ. The Gospels were not written to give us a chronological order of Jesus' life. The Gospels were not written to provide us day-by-day or moment-by-moment looks at Jesus' life. The Gospels were not provided to tell us all the important events and details of the things that took place in Jesus' life. The Gospels were written in order to convince us that Jesus is Christ. That Jesus is the Son of God. That's why the Gospels were written. And with that in mind, as we take a look at the Gospels, to us, the most important question often is, how do these harmonize? How do these come together to tell us about the life of Christ? I think we make a mistake when we believe that's the most important question. The most important question is not, how do these go together to tell us of everything about the life of Christ? Because none of the Gospels and the Gospels together were not intended for that purpose. Rather, when we're taking a look at the Gospels, it's more important for us to notice who is writing, who are they writing to, what were their secondary purposes, and why did this particular author choose to share with us the details that he provided? Why is it that John only told us about Mary Magdalene? Why didn't he tell us about the other women? They were there, in fact, in John chapter 20 and verse 2, when Mary Magdalene is saying to the apostles, he's gone, she says, and we don't know where he is. See, in her statement, she, John implies that other women were with her. But all he tells us directly about is Mary Magdalene. Why did he do that? What's most important for us is to take a look at the Gospels. Why did Matthew include this detail and Mark tell it this way? Why did Luke tell us this, whereas John told us this? Why did they choose these details? I think the problem is we would like some super gospel that provides every detail to explain to us what really happened. But what God has provided are these four Gospels so that we might know who Jesus really is. And that's what the Gospels are about. That we might know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing on Him, we might have life through His name. And so the question of harmonizing is actually secondary. And while it is a beneficial question, it's beneficial for us to take a look and try to see how these things fit together. That's really not the purpose of all four Gospels. God didn't provide four Gospels so that we could try to put them together and figure out everything about the life of Christ. He gave us these four Gospels from four different perspectives going to four different audiences with different purposes that we might understand that Jesus is the Christ. And we have to understand that's what the Gospels are. The second principle that I think we need to recognize is that we need to understand the nature of storytelling. The Gospels are narratives. They're telling us stories 
about Jesus. Stories intended to impress upon us that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Now, there are standards that people hold the Gospels to that they would never hold other storytellers to. There are devices that are used commonly in storytelling, and we would never call a storyteller a liar just because they use these devices, and the Gospels use them as well. And we need to understand them. I'd like to share three of them with you that I think are appropriate for our discussion. The very first one is the device of telescoping. Or that's what I've heard others call it. I think it's a great definition. It's the idea of looking through a little hole to see something really big. And what often happens is the author's telescope, they're actually talking about a great period of time, but they sum it up in just a couple of statements. They might be talking about a huge discourse, and they just sum it up in here was the theme of what Jesus said. They're telescoping. For instance... Look in Acts chapter 1 and verse 3. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 3, Luke informs us how long Jesus was on the earth after He was resurrected. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 3, He said, To these He also presented Himself alive after His suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Jesus was with His apostles for 40 days after the resurrection. But you read Matthew and Mark and Luke, and you see just a snippet. They're summarizing what happened at the end of Jesus' ministry here on earth after His resurrection in just these few statements. And so they're very general. When you take a look at Matthew chapter 28 and Mark chapter 16 and Luke chapter 24, and you see these final words of Jesus Christ, one of the things we recognize in telescoping, that they're not necessarily providing us exact quotes but rather giving us a summary of what Jesus taught when He was with those disciples for those last 40 days. Storytellers do that all the time. Let me ask you, haven't you done that? Haven't you told somebody, you know, I was talking to so-and-so and they said this. Now, they talked for 20 minutes and you just summed it up in a sentence. For instance, if somebody asked you tomorrow, hey, what did your preacher preach on yesterday? You could say, oh, Edwin said we should just go back to the Bible. Isn't that what I preached on this morning? Is that an exact quote of everything I said? If somebody else were to say, oh, he had five points. You know, don't trust your personal desires, don't trust your personal convictions, don't trust special people, and don't trust the majority. Always go back to the real authority. And so Don is telling somebody, oh, he said these five things. And, and Charles tells him, he said, just go back to the Bible. Were they lying? Was either one of them lying? Did they contradict each other? No but just they were telescoping. They were summarizing, which, by the way, wasn't all that extremely long of a sermon, but they were summarizing this 25 minutes of my talking into just a statement. And nobody would say they were lying. They were telescoping, and that's what the gospel writers do. In that telescoping, so you, you take long periods of times and you summarize them in a few statements. You might take long discourses and summarize what was said and still just say, Jesus said such and such. The other thing you do when you're telescoping is you generalize. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're not interested in telling us all the details of everything that happened from the moment the sun rose to the moment the sun set on the day of Jesus' resurrection. It, 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 it's not a part of their purpose to explain to us exactly what every woman among the group that went to the tomb did. And so they don't really tell us anything about Mary Magdalene, who I think when we put it all together, she saw the tomb and left before the others went in. But they're just generalizing, talking about the women in general, what happened. The women in general came to the tomb, saw angels, saw Jesus, 
reported it to the apostles. And they're not providing us all the exact details of what every single one of the women was doing. Why? Because they're telescoping. They're simplifying by just giving us the general highlights of what happened without going into every single detail. The second principle that I think we need to recognize is the principle of selection. Whenever you're telling a story, every person telling the story is going to have to select the details and the events they want to tell about. Have you ever talked to somebody who went to a movie and you say, oh, tell me about the movie. And they start and they go on and they go on and they go on and they go on. And the movie lasts an hour and a half and they're telling you minute by minute exactly what was said, hour and a half, taking just as long to tell you about the movie. All you wanted was, give me the highlights. Select the important details, right? Well, the gospel writers did not go through to tell us everything that happened. They had to select the details. They had to select the events. And they selected those based on what would accomplish their purposes. We take in mind that these four men writing from four different backgrounds, writing to four different audiences, accomplishing to a certain degree four different purposes. Yes, they all had the same general purpose, prove that Jesus is the Christ, but their secondary purposes were different based on their audience. And because of that, they're going to select different details. They're going to select different events. Because they're not giving us a biography, they're not going to necessarily be in chronological order. They're going to be thematic presentations of these details to drive home their point. And so they have to select the details. We have Matthew, who is writing as an eyewitness, and he is explaining to Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. And therefore, he's going to select different details and different events than Mark who was writing, and traditionally we understand that Mark was probably writing on behalf of Peter. So here, here Mark is writing based on what he's heard from Peter. Yes, guided by the Holy Spirit. And he's writing to the Romans to convince them that Jesus was God. And then you have Luke writing to Theophilus, or a Greek-minded audience, and his desire is to, con- to convince the Greeks that Jesus is the Son of God. And then you've got John, also an eyewitness, an apostle of Jesus Christ, who is presenting a more philosophical approach to demonstrate to the universal mankind that Jesus is the Word of God who came in the flesh, which is extremely important to him because he wasn't just trying to prove that Jesus was the Son of God. He was trying to demonstrate that the Gnostic faith was false, the idea that the Son of God did not come in the flesh. He wanted to prove he did come in the flesh. And so they had different purposes, and they selected different things. You think about John. Why might John select to tell us just about Mary Magdalene? Because when we read in, in, in those closing chapters of the book of John about the resurrection, Mary Magdalene was the one that came to John and told him about the empty tomb. That might stand out to him as, this is the important detail that I want to pass on. He has to select. It's not contradiction, it's selection. The third principle is the one that I call, meanwhile, back at the ranch. Whenever you're telling a story... Have you ever told a story and you've had to follow a certain number of events and then you have to say, okay, now, before I tell you what happened next, we've got to back up and let me tell you what was happening over here. Have you ever done that? That happens all the time. Or you might be not even telling a story. You might just be trying to teach something and you're going down one logical path and you get to a point and you say, okay, now hold that thought. We've also got to go back here. And you start back here and you build it up until those two things come together. Well, that's what happens in the, in the New Testament and the Gospels all the time. And there, again... First of all, they're not giving us chronological detail, everyday events of Jesus' life. They're just demonstrating who Jesus is in a thematic presentation. 
But in addition to that, oftentimes, as we read through, we find that they get up to a point and then they have to back up and say, now, while that was going, look at this. For instance, if you look at Matthew 28 and verse 11, it talks about what happened on the day of the resurrection and you get up to what's happening with the women and they get to a certain point in verse 10. Then he says, verse 11, now, while they were on their way, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. And we see what happens there. And then in verse 16, it goes off and talks about something that happens in the future, not, not on that day. Because, again, it was telescoping. And so we see these various principles that are taking place in the Gospels. Uh, oftentimes, they're going to get to a certain point and they say, okay, now I've got to back up and tell you something else. And so it looks to us like, oh, they got it wrong, they're out of order, it's not chronological. That's not the issue at all. It's just storytelling. That's the way you tell stories. And that's what the Gospels do. It's not contradiction. It's just the way you tell stories. And you've got four different people telling the story. And so you expect it to be different. Keep in mind, if all four of them told the exact same story the exact same way, we'd only need one of them. The third principle that we need to keep in mind is that there are, in fact, no contradictions. Perhaps we've already demonstrated this as we talked about the selection, but I wanted to hone in on this. What we find are differences. What we find are that the four authors have chosen to provide us with different details, different events, but they don't contradict each other. And I'll see if I, I'm going to see if I can illustrate this for you. Last week, I was actually talking with my friend Max about this. We were driving in the Suburban on the way here to the Sunday morning assembly. And one of the things we pointed out is in that Suburban, uh, seven of us were riding. Me and Max, uh, Lee and Marita, and our three kids. Seven people. Now, what if Max and I were both journalers, and in my journal, I wrote down on January 1st, 2006, I drove Max and Lee Dawson and my wife and three children to the assembly of the Franklin Church. And then on Max's journal, he wrote in his journal on January 1st, 2006, he said, I rode with Edwin to church. 2,000 years from now, somebody finds our memoirs, and they look at Edwin Crozier, and it says, why Edwin said there were seven people in the car, Max said there was only two. Were we contradicting each other? Did Max's statement that he rode with Edwin to church contradict my statement that I drove Max, Lee, Marita, and Tess and Ethan and Ryan to the assembly? No, those don't contradict. He just chose to focus on different details than I did. What was important to him was that, hey, I rode with Edwin. What was important to me was saying, here was all the people that were in my car. Who knows why those things were important to us, but they don't contradict each other. They're just a selection of different events or different details because of what we thought was important. One of the things that the critics try to make a great deal about, and you can get on websites all over and they'll say, look, why, these Christians, the Gospels, they couldn't even agree on what Jesus' last words were. They can't even agree on the last thing Jesus said on the cross. Look at Matthew 28. Excuse me, not Matthew 28, Matthew 27. Matthew chapter 27 and verse 46. In Matthew chapter 27 and verse 46, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there, when they heard it, began saying, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran, taking a sponge. He filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed, gave him a drink. But the rest of them said, let's see whether Elijah will come and save him. Jesus cried out, verse 50, with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Now let's look over in Mark chapter 15. 
in Mark chapter 15, beginning at verse 34. In Mark 15 and verse 34, At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, Behold, he is calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave him a drink, saying, Let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Now let's look in Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. In Luke chapter 23 and verse 46, Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. And finally, we look in John chapter 19. In John chapter 19 and verse 30, John chapter 19 and verse 30, Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Well, see, there it is. The gospel writers couldn't even agree on what his last words were. According to Matthew and Mark, it's Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? According to Luke, it's into your hands I commit my spirit. And according to John, it's it is finished. You know, you would think that if the crucifixion were all that important, the gospel writers could have at least agreed on what Jesus said on the cross. But I want you to notice that this is selection. This is not contradiction. I think one of the problems here is, is that because we like the biographical approach, because we, we are so important, it's so important to us, excuse me, because it's so important to us to find out what the last words of a person were, we think surely these gospel writers are going to tell us what his last words were. But y'all read all those passages with me. Which one of those gospel writers said, and Jesus' last words were, did any of them say that? None of them said this is Jesus' last words. That wasn't important to these writers, what Jesus' last words were. All these writers did was tell us something Jesus said on the cross. They didn't put it in order. There certainly weren't two of them that said, now Jesus' last words were, and then said two different things. That didn't happen. But depending on the purpose in the gospel, they chose to tell us which statements Jesus... They recorded different statements of Jesus from the cross. In fact... Something that you'll often hear us say, and studying this has caused me to back up and rethink this, you'll often hear us say, oh, Jesus said seven things on the cross. Well, that may not be true. We don't know how many things Jesus said on the cross. All we know is the Gospel writers recorded seven statements from Jesus on the cross. And that's, that's probably what we should say. They recorded seven statements. Their concern wasn't about their order. Their concern wasn't about which one of them was last. But what fit with their gospel were the statements that they chose. Selection, not contradiction. And we need to recognize that difference. Again, if there was some kind of statement where John said, now Jesus' last words were this, and Luke said Jesus' last words were this, and they were different, we might have an argument. But that's not what's happening. So we need to understand what the gospels are. We need to understand the nature of storytelling. We need to recognize selection, not contradiction. And finally... The fourth principle, we need to know when the Gospels were written. Now, the liberal critics will not accept this. If some liberal critic gets a hold of this tape, they'll say, oh, he got it all wrong here. But their bias is just, it, it's, it's very sad. It's unexplainable. They, they have a bias. They can't allow these things to have been written early because if they were written early, that would prove too much. But all of these Gospels were written within one generation from the time that Jesus died. 
When each of these Gospels were written, the people who first read them could actually talk to the authors. And when they read Matthew's Gospel, and then they read Luke's Gospel, and they saw some kind of difference, for instance, in the genealogies, they could actually go to Matthew and Luke and say, what's up with this? It is the height of modern arrogance to believe that it's only been in the last four or five hundred years that we have been smart enough to notice that there are differences in these Gospels. But that is exactly what the critics think these days. That, oh, we finally opened our eyes. We finally become honest and can see that there are differences. You don't think people in the first century when they read Matthew and Luke couldn't see that there were different names on those genealogical lists? I think they were smart enough to figure that out. And they could go talk to Matthew, and they could go talk to Luke. And you know who else they could talk to? They could go talk to Jesus' brother James and his brother Jude, who had the same genealogies, and could find out what's going on here. And what we recognize is that the people who could first read these and check out these differences and find out what was really going on, they accepted these books. They obviously were able to answer these questions. Let's go back to our two journals that we talked about a moment ago. Max's journal of last Sunday and mine. Let's assume now that, because we know that nobody today is really interested in reading our journals, but let's just assume that 2,000 years from now, there's some archaeological dig, and they find my journal, they find Max's journal, and they look at January 1st, 2006, and they see these things, and they say, well, boy, this looks odd. This looks odd. Max just says he rode with Edwin. Edwin says he had these six other people in there. How did this work? Now, what they could say is, well, we're not exactly sure, but, you know, there are a couple of possibilities. First of all, these statements are not mutually exclusive. Maybe Max was just saying that, hey, I rode with Edwin. And Edwin was saying, yeah, he rode with me, but there were other people there. Maybe that's all it means. Somebody else might say, well, that's possible, but, you know, we've studied the history, and we know that during that day, it was pretty well traditional for those congregations to have two assemblies on Sunday. And so maybe Edwin is talking about one of the assemblies and their trip to it, and Max is talking about the other one. Somebody else might say, well, it's possible, but you know, there could just be more than one Edwin Crozier and more than one Max Dawson in the world, and maybe we've got two different journals here talking about two different people. And I know y'all would, I know y'all are saying, man, please, no more than one Edwin Crozier. But possibly, Possibly there's somebody else out there named Edwin Crozier and somebody else named Max Dawson. They say, so these aren't contradictions. These are just talking about two different people. We can't assume they're the same people. And so we've got three different explanations. All of them are plausible. All of them are reasonable. Only one of them's right. But 2,000 years from now, how are they going to know which one's right? But of course today, if you guys, for some strange reason, you know, maybe you can't sleep at night or something, you're reading my journal and Max's journal, and you come across it and you say, boy, this is odd. This seems like a contradiction. You could get on the phone, you could call me, and you could call Max, and you could find out what the actual answer is, couldn't you? You see the difference there? And so for us today, we take a look at these Gospels. And, and we look at these histories, and we see differences, and we see things that cause us problems. And we can look at it and we can say, well, there's this possibility, and there's this possibility, and there's this possibility. Now, I don't know which one of them's right. But there are three or four reasonable, plausible possibilities that could be the answer. Now, the critic says, because you can't figure out which one it is, it must be a lie. It must be a contradiction. It must be wrong. That's just not true. This is just the nature of dealing with historical documents. We can't talk to the people who wrote these. We can't find out how they mesh together sometimes exactly. But we can point out that 
this could work, this could work, and this could work, that means it's not a contradiction. So just because I can't figure out the absolute exact answer and only can figure out possibilities doesn't mean there's not an answer. Just like in that case with the journals with me and Max. Now somebody might ask, I don't get it. Why would the most powerful being in the universe who wants people to be saved provide something that would be this complex? Why wouldn't it be more simple? Why wouldn't he just give us that super gospel that would just explain it all once and we'd just be fine? Or why not just give us four that say the exact same thing so that we wouldn't have to worry about this? Because you know there are going to be people who aren't going to believe because they look at these differences. Why would the God of heaven do this sort of thing? Well, let me first say, I don't know why God does what he does. Who am I to know? God is far greater than me and he is not responsible to explain to me why he does everything. And just because he does things differently than I would do doesn't mean he's not God. And I think there are a lot of folks today that have the idea that they ought to be able to fully understand God. But you know, if we fully understood him, would he really be God? There are folks that have the idea that we ought to fully understand exactly why God has done everything he's done and it ought to fit within my mindset. But if it really did, would that really be God? I don't think it would. God is way beyond us. There are two passages that I think help us understand why God did this, why it is complex. Now, this is uh, things that help me understand why, but I can't fully explain the mind of God. Look in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15. In 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15, Paul wrote, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed accurately handling the word of truth. When God described through Paul our relation to dealing with His Word, He did not describe us as spoon-fed children. He described us as workmen. God provided His Word in a way that you and I would have to diligently work to understand it. And I recognize that there are some people that just can't grasp the fact that God would make it difficult and make us work at it. But let's at least be honest enough to say that the Word that people are saying is really difficult said that's the way it would be. The other passage is Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, beginning at verse 10. In Matthew chapter 13, beginning at verse 10, Jesus had taught the parable of the sower. In Matthew chapter 13 and verse 10, the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? It didn't make sense to them. Why, why would you talk to us about a farmer going out and sowing seed? That just doesn't make any sense. We don't get it. We know, that, we know that it's not important to you about the farmer sowing seeds, so why don't you just tell us what you really mean? Why are you making us work at it and trying to figure it out? Jesus answered them, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing, they don't see. While hearing, they don't hear, nor do they understand. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, You will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they would see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, because they see, and your ears, because they hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. I recognize he's dealing specifically with why did he use parables, but there's a principle here regarding the teaching of Jesus, the teaching of God, that I think we have to understand. 
The reason God didn't spoon feed us is because He was making a division between the people who would work at it, who seeing would see, hearing would hear, and would understand because they worked at it, they questioned it, they asked, and they dug, versus the people who would look at it and say, that doesn't make any sense to me, it must be wrong. It must not matter. God specifically is making a division in the world. He's dividing two different kinds of people. The people who will apply themselves to it to figure out what it means, and the people who won't. And again, I recognize that the critics will say, oh, that's silly, that's ridiculous. I just can't imagine that God would do that. Well, that's fine. You can't imagine that God would do it, but at least be honest enough to admit that this word that you're saying is so complex that divide the world that divides the world asunder between those who believe it and those who don't, at least that word said that's what it was going to do. And so that's the thing that I think we need to understand. Do the Gospels contradict each other? No. So we don't have to deal with contradictions. Are there differences? Yeah. Are there, are there difficulties? Are there passages that are hard for us to look at? Of course there are. But I think these principles help us understand what the Gospels exactly were doing. The Gospels not giving us a chronicle, day-by-day look, at moment-by-moment, detailed look at Jesus' life, not even necessarily chronological. It's trying to tell us who Jesus is. We need to recognize that they're giving narratives, they're telling stories just like anybody else who tells a story. And they use the same devices as storytellers that we accept all the time. We need to recognize that there's selection, not contradiction. There's differences. There's not denial. And finally, we need to recognize that when these things were written, people could ask the authors and they found out the answers and they accepted it. We may not always know the exact answer, but we can know that there is an answer. I hope this has been beneficial to you. We do this on second Sunday night every month, answering questions that have been submitted by guests and by members. If you have a question that you would like to have answered, I'm not suggesting that I know all the answers. I'm just suggesting that the Bible can tell us everything that we need to know about serving God and going to heaven. If you've got a question that you would like for us to deal with on the second Sunday night of the month, there's a little sheet of paper on the table right before you go out the door. You can fill that out and drop it in the box outside my office, and hopefully we'll be able to help with those. Make sure you put your name on it in case I have to get clarification or in case I feel like it's not appropriate to answer that publicly, but just will maybe write a response for that. So I hope this has been beneficial. If you have any questions, if you think I've missed something, please feel free to talk to me about that as well following the service. I'd be happy to study with you anything that might help us all go to heaven. I hope this question and answer lesson from January of 2006 was beneficial to you, helping you understand the gospel of Jesus Christ and the four different records of that gospel. Let's remember what we learned here in answer to the question, why do the gospels contradict and how do we deal with it? First, we need to remember the nature of the gospels. The gospels are not written to give us a chronological, day-to-day accounting of everything that happened in Jesus' life. Secondly, we need to remember some principles of storytelling. The Gospels are stories. Third, we need to remember that while we find selection, we do not find contradiction. And fourth, remember most of all that while we cannot go back to the authors and question them, when these books were first written, the people who accepted them first could talk to those authors and find out what each author's point was and how they harmonize. We can have faith in that. 
I hope this is beneficial. But if you have any other questions about the Gospels, about anything in the Bible, or about what is taught at the Franklin Church of Christ, please give us a call at 615-794-2359. Or you may contact us through our website. Again, that's www.franklinchurchofchrist.com. Perhaps somebody has given you this lesson on tape or on CD. If so, let me encourage you to go to that website I just mentioned, franklinchurchofchrist.com. We have numerous lessons on numerous topics that you're free to download. We have them there both in audio and outline format, and you're free to take whichever ones you want and use them in whatever way will glorify God and draw folks closer to Him. May God richly bless you as you draw closer to Him. More importantly, may you richly bless God.